This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. Hey there, everybody. This is John Auer, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. Songwriter John Auer describes a popular subsection of the Posey's music as harmonious dissonance. His lyrics sometimes broach a parallel dichotomy, one that's just as likely to divulge something personal as to dance around it. One of my favorite parts of our talk featured a good-natured debate about whether music created from anger and angst can evoke a happy response. As John explains and writes, there are at least two sides for everything. Let's listen.
John Ower, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Is it all right to cry? <laughs> it's not a Baba Wawa interview. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> good, good point. This interview lives on. When people find Songwriter Stories for the first time because they found their favorite artist, they go, oh my God, John Ower's on here. I've got to hear that one. Right? It does live on long after we're, we're all, you know, it'll be like the cockroaches and podcasts, basically. Yeah. So, so don't fuck it up. Yeah, well, that's that's always my goal. Every day I wake up and I look in the mirror and I say, don't fuck it up. I was talking to me. <laughs> Are you talking to me? Let's set the stage for us. Tell us about the house where you started as a band with the Posies and your dad's role with the studio and your approximate ages. The studio existed long before... Uh, the posies was even even a thought or a concept in in either my mind or my partner 's mind ken stringfellows It was about three years before the posies uh, was even a name or an idea or a thought. Um, basically, Ken and I met when we were very young, and uh, i 'm a year younger than Ken, so I want to say I met him when I was thirteen and he was fourteen years old mm-hmm. and At this point, I already had the studio in my house, but we didn't we didn 't really know each other we just well we we, we came to know of each other because I was you know a year behind in school, and we were living in this small town uh, in uh, western Washington, uh, almost to the Canadian border, basically a town called Bellingham. And my father was, uh, he was working at the university there. There's a very large university. Um, it's, it's the third largest university in Washington State called Western Washington University. What an imaginative name that is, huh, Dave? And, uh, <laughs> you know, my dad was part of the, 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 the folk scene and the music scene in Bellingham uh, since the 70s, since the early 70s when I moved there, about, I think, 1973. Wow, that's dating me. And um, one thing led to another, and eventually, um, when we ended up in this particular house, uh, my father uh, had some extra money that he decided he wanted to actually put into, you know, building a recording studio. And, you know, uh, for anybody, anybody listening out there, I mean, obviously, this is long before there were things like cell phones and, and you know, everybody had a recording studio like you know, on their watch, basically, which is what it is like now, you know. So uh, the family rec room got turned into uh, kind of the, 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 the live recording room, if you will. And then there was this old uh, laundry room that got turned into a control room. And he had a woodworker friend actually build this thing and turn it into a proper studio, but also uh, had double functionality and that we could also watch television, you know, and there was a wood stove, I think, even. Wow, that's pretty amazing. This is the house that I was in during my teenage years, basically. I mean, it was a fully functioning studio, but it, it, it didn't take away from the functionality of being a family and all of us living there. My dad put a baby grand piano in the living room. So, you know, this is, this is a, a house that revolved around music in many ways. And that's where I grew up. So that's where the impetus was. He knew that there was a lot of music happening and he wanted to capture some of it. It's true. But the funny thing is then he made, he built the studio and he just got busy doing other things. And you know, I just kind of picked up the torch, I guess. And, you know, I did all the things that a quote unquote normal teenager would do. I would go out and have fun and get in trouble and, you know, go on dates. And, but there often would be times that I would just stay home for a weekend and work in the studio all weekend. And I mean, I was, you know, 13, 14, 15 doing this. And, uh, you know, long before the, the posies existed, I was also, not only was I recording bands that I was in, I was recording bands 
in Bellingham, which, you know, there weren't a ton of them at that time, but I think in the end I recorded almost, you know, every one of them. <laughs> You're very young though. How do you, how did you learn to use the studio? I mean, Brian Wilson had to hang out with Phil Spector. You didn't have that at, at your disposal. Well, I just listened to, to the voices in my head, which there were plenty, I guess. <laughs> but uh, No, I'm just... Really experimentation for the most really, part? Really, I mean... Figuring it, out the knobs and switches? Yeah, I mean, everything I did was, was trial and error when it came to... Uh, learning how to use the studio. I, I don't even recall, I wasn't really a kind of the guy who wanted to read the manuals. You know, I just wanted to hack my way through things and try things out and see how things worked. And of course, I mean, how do you, how does one learn? They learn by doing, right? I mean, that's, I think the best way to do it in the end. I mean, you can read about how to do something and it can help you with the steps of how to do something properly, which can be very helpful, especially when you're trying to make a souffle or something like that, you know, and in, in a way, I mean, I guess you could say that with music too. I mean, but mostly from the technical end. Um, so for me, I think it was, it was just classic trial and error. Were you the same with the guitar? Well, my history with the guitar is interesting in that I did take some lessons but I also, very early on, when I was, you know, much younger, I, I, I also played other instruments. I played violin when I was, like, around, I think, three or four to about the age of six. Um, and I also played, I played drums for a little while. Um, you know, I guess, you know, not very well, but I had very good rhythm was what I was told. But I really started playing music from, you know, from a very early age. And a lot of it was just being around other musicians, you know. And the guitar thing, yeah, I mean, I took some lessons, but there was one point when my teacher said, hey, you know what, I've shown you the scales, I've shown you like the nuts and bolts, but what you need to go do is go play, basically, you know, mm -hmm. and um, that's what I did. I, ju I, just, I just played all the time and, and I worked in the studio all the time. I mean, I was, there are hours and hours of, of tapes of, of me just messing around and learning how to use all the equipment. And every time a new piece of equipment would come in, I would use it as an excuse to try to create something that used that piece of equipment. In these earliest days, what did you see in Ken, Ken Stringfellow, and what did you see as your places in the band? What were your roles? How were they similar and how were they different? The band that it was about to be. Well, the band that was about to be, if you, if you mean the Posies, Ken and I went through a lot of incarnations of different bands that we were in together. And actually, you know, we were more peripheral members, I mean, in like the other bands. You know, we, I mean, we weren't often the lead focus in those bands. And one thing that I think that we had in common was we had a very similar sense of humor, I think, is what it really came down to and the way we kind of looked at the world we had kind of a dark world view you know and 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 we you know we bonded over you know like a lot of people do we bonded over records that we liked and 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 movies and and things like that and you know in in high school i mean we were we were kind of the proverbial best friends you know so we uh did a lot of formative things together and you know certainly you know making music uh was, was one of them and what we discovered is that all these other projects we worked on just kind of, they kind of fell by the wayside and we would end up still being together. And finally we were just like, maybe we should just do something our, on our own. And I think what really kind of led us in the direction of the posies is that this was the age when CDs were starting to 
starting to come out. And I actually, my first job was at a record store in Bellingham. That's, that was my big job. So I, I was actually working at a record store when the first, you know, Beatles music that was available on, on a CD arrived at the store. And that was almost like going to school, music school, like all over again. Cause of course I'd heard these records and, you know, when I was growing up and a young kid, I mean, you know, how can you not, you know, be a musician or into music and hear the Beatles and not find something in there that is just instructive. <laughs> I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's the template really. Right. I went through various phases. I know Ken did too. I mean, I, I, I was into, you know, metal. I was into goth music. I got into synthesizers. My parents were into folk music and I grew up in a, in a, in a you know, around a lot of folk music. Ken got into punk. We both got into like stuff like, uh, you know, like uh, the first wave of twin tone bands coming out of Minneapolis. We had a lot of phases that we went through. And that's in a short time you're talking about that all that happened. Yeah. Just I mean, this is all with a couple, two or three years, really. I mean, we just, it, it was like trying on different clothes until you find something that fits. And what we ended up realizing is that the common denominator between all these things that we enjoyed was that it kind of came down to songs. You know, that's what it was. Like, I mean, yeah, I love playing, you know, lead guitar and I love showing off and it's fun. And, you know, yeah, I mean, we love great musicianship and those kind of things. But what really was the common denominator between everything that we enjoyed was whether the song was any good or not. Because, you know, the rest of it didn't really matter if there wasn't a great, you know, song to sell the music. So that was kind of our manifesto was to maybe we should just focus on songs. And you know, we, we, we were getting into things like 60s influences and uh, at the time because of those Beatles records. And then, of course, you know, by osmosis, other things like the zombies and the small faces and the move. And th that's where we were at at the time. So this collection of songs that we wrote came out of it, recorded at that studio that my father, he built it and it was there. You know, if you build it, they will come. Right. And uh there I was um, recording these songs of ours. And I think another thing is that nobody really wanted to join us on this vision initially. Like we had these ideas, but we could never find people who actually, besides the two of us, who wanted to stick to it with us. So we said, you know, screw it. Let's just do it all ourselves. I honestly think that is the way that people find their way is you, look, you get a bunch of people looking at you like with their head turned and their eyebrows furled. That's the answer that tells you you're on the right track. <laughs> and you just have to find the other like-minded person. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. And it's funny because, of, of course, at the time it seemed like, why won't people, why can't we find anybody to help us? And we realized that we were the ones that needed to help ourselves, you know. And that's what became uh, the Posey's first record, Failure, um, which it's a totally homegrown affair. I want to read you a couple of things. So these are from the liner notes of the Omnivore re-release of Failure. Um, it mentions two 17-year-olds, an 8-track, and some mics, basically, is how this album was made. And I want to read you some mean tweets, even though there was no Twitter back then, that come from the Backlash letter section in May 1989. Are you ready? Yeah. The Posey suck. Weak, formulaic writing, corny, cliched lyrics, be less harmonies quotes, abound. If I want this crap, I will get an XTC album and probably get a little substance for my money. End quote. Signed, among other names, 
the entire 38th page of the Bellingham Yellow Pages. After hearing the scathing rebuke, I say to you, defend yourself, John Hour. Defend yourself. Well, no defense needed. I mean, history has vindicated already. <laughs> and, you know, to be, to be funny uh, about this and honest, uh, the person that wrote that, it was actually a very good friend of my brother's. So it's, let's just say part of it was personal. But what I want to say is thank you for giving us this great stuff to put on our reissue. I mean, and also I think it's interesting to think that, like that actually we, uh, we kept the letters section of, uh, you know, a local... Uh, you know, magazine in, in Seattle alive for a good six to eight months uh, with, you know, people's responses back and forth. You know, the posies, we came from Bellingham and we were just in Bellingham doing our own thing. And that's, that's the truth. We were just off on our own little planet, making this record completely unaware of what was really happening in places like Seattle, except for, you know, a few bands that we enjoyed. But when we finally moved to Seattle with this record and started to become who we became, um, we were kind of in the middle of this, well, situation where we were not, you know, what was popular or becoming popular in Seattle at that time. I mean, Seattle obviously became known for, you know, being the city of grunge, for instance. And we were literally, you know, we were growing up side by side with that scene um, doing our own thing. I mean, there were other bands that we we were fans of, and we uh, we were on this label called Pop Llama, and this band, the Young Fresh Fellows, were a big we were big fans of theirs, and we wanted to be on this label, Pop Llama, and they were they were right there alongside Sub Pop, but uh, didn't take off in the same manner that Sub Pop did. Um, so you can imagine what it was like trying to do. Well, you know, trying to be very melodic and also having pretty voices too we weren't like you know even though we can scream we weren't screamers you know there i mean the the angst was in our music and our lyrics maybe but it wasn't in the way that we actually presented our voices our voices were more and that's a feature not a bug well it depends i mean i i see i'm i like them both i like i like so many things i mean i either or works for me but i don't think one should be at the exclusion of the other and that's kind of that kind of happened to us and with the whole seattle thing a little bit but you know well, yeah, Seattle was whisper, scream, whisper, scream, verse, chorus, you know. Sure, but, you know, there was also the perception of Seattle being only about one thing, and it never was. Right. You know, the thing about failure in hindsight to me that is amazing is that, you know, these these two kids basically decide because they have no other options, they decide that they're just going to make what was supposed to be a demo tape. It was supposed to be a, a tape to get people interested in actually joining their band and playing music live with them and uh, unintentionally, I guess, create their first record, you know, and I found a uh, studio log. I don't have it in front of me, but I think we spent about 90 hours total making that entire record. If I look at it and, you know, I played the drums, Ken played all the bass. Uh, we split the guitars uh, and percussion and we split the vocals. And of course, you know, we formed our partnership based on the classic, you know, partnerships of, of your, I mean, sure. You know, we thought Lennon and McCartney, so we're going to split everything 50, 50, even though, you know, I'd write, I'd write half the songs. He wrote half the songs and we'd each sing half. We still have that agreement. In fact, that's how it works with us. And it works, seems to work pretty well with us. And every once in a while you would write a chorus to his verse. Or sure. Vice versa. But for the most part of one of us sang it, that, you know, that's the person who wrote it, but failure is remarkable to me. It's, it's rather remarkable because it is, 
we did get some flack later from people about it being, you know, commercial or us trying to shoot for the big time or whatever. And the funny thing is, A, considering what was going on in Seattle at the time, it couldn't have been, you know, further from what was commercial really at the time. And B, it was actually pretty darn punk in how DIY it was. I mean, this, you know, we made it on used tape in my dad's house. I, by the way, I was, I was the engineer at that point. Ken wasn't a, a recording engineer at all. So I did all the, all the recording and engineering. Um, and I also, I mixed the whole record by myself one night. Uh, you probably read about that in the liner notes as well. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is it's, it's pretty remarkable that, you know, in hindsight that we had that much, uh, hood spa really. Um, I mean, we didn't have the internet like we have now. We couldn't just put it up on Bandcamp. We actually, you know, we made cassettes of this record. And we, we, we you know, I, I had a friend of mine print up covers in the local universities uh, where my father taught his, the print shop there. I went there one late, late one night and we printed up like a thousand covers, you know, two to a sheet. And then we would take X-Acto knives and cut them by hand and fold them ourselves. And, you know, <laughs> did you feel... This was a scary thing, all of this, or some of this, when you went to bed at night, or did you say, you know, this is what we're doing, we're just doing it, and you supported each other? No, I mean, I I never, it wasn't scary at all. I mean, for me, it's funny, I look back at it, just the whole path of doing music, I, you know, I never had that moment where I, I, I looked in the mirror and said, like, I'm going to do this, I just always did it, if that makes sense, like, I just, it just always led that direction for me, I can honestly say that looking back, you know, but again, in hindsight, when you look back at that and think like, you know, who were these guys, you know, who is, who are these people doing this themselves? And I, I, I don't think we get as much credit maybe to people who don't know as much about us. I mean, if they, if they really knew how do it yourself, we were, some of those letters you were reading, I don't think would have ever, you know, from that letter section of that, of that backlash magazine, I don't think some of those would have ever uh, come to light the same way they did. I may hate you sometimes. I may hate you So um, I May Hate You Sometimes was a national U.S. radio hit, and it was featured on the show Daria. That just kind of happened, like many things that, you know, in my life or the Posey's life, that just occurred. It wasn't like anyone solicited anything. And it was, a, you know, it was enough that we heard about it from a lot of people. I mean, that's how I found out about it. Like, hey, you're on this show. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of the show, but this is pretty great. I like the two-part harmony a lot. There's a lot of it in the, in the song. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way it was designed um, from the get-go. I mean, there's the partnership, of course, between Ken and I. But, you know, when I wrote the song, I, I had the harmonies in mind um, and the counterpoint uh, that happens in the chorus, too. That was something that I, I wrote, you know. Um, but, of course, you know, the beauty of being in a partnership or in a group with somebody that you, you know, gel with so well musically is that, you know, you can write stuff and think about how it's going to sound with that other person singing or playing on it. And in, in our case, there's, there's something about the way that Ken and I sing together that there's a different overtone. It's, it's just, it's, you know, I mean, not to get too new agey, but it's all about energy, really. It's the energy that's generated when the two of us sing together. We were in high school choir together for many, many years. We actually 
We were in what is known as concert choir. And then we also did the extracurricular activity known as jazz choir. And for those of you that don't know, that involves actually showing up an hour before school starts, like three days a week and singing like at seven in the morning, basically, like for an entire year. And, you know, I'll, I'll show you how into choir I was. Like, I didn't ask for this, but one day, you know how some like the jocks would letter like in things like football and, and you know, sports? Well, guess who lettered in choir? One day a certificate just showed up and I was like, how did I get this? I didn't even know you could letter in choir, you know, but uh, that just shows you how tough I was too, right? Um, but, you know, that's that's a component to, to Ken and, and mine's uh, singing and performing relationship for sure is all that time. We put in 10,000 hours together. I mean, I put in 10,000 hours in a recording studio on my own for sure before I was 17, you know, and uh, that obviously shows in, in what I ended up doing and making, you know, recording this record. And then I, you know, I went on to record things in other Posey's records and other bands, and that's a large part of my career still. Um, but Ken and I put in the 10,000 hours of, of singing together before we were even probably really in the Posies, you know. I May Hate You Sometimes is a, it could arguably be the one song you could play from us right off the bat just to show how we harmonize together because it's, it, it really just shows it off all right there, I think. Next, you recorded three albums on DGC Records, which is David Keffin Company. So how did that connection happen? Failure was like, not only was it the demo tape that became a record that sold a lot of copies as an independent release, it also became our calling card you know, uh, our business card, if you will. We sent it around to people for sure. And there was definitely interest. And there was actually another label interested in us before uh, eventually, um, you know, an A&R man named Gary Gersh showed up from Geffen, DGC, and, and basically said, hey, we're going to start this new, this new imprint on Geffen and we'd like you to be on it. And I believe he'd actually found out about the record from a review that uh, was in the magazine at the time called Cashbox, which I think is also in Failure's, uh, the re-release of Failure. There's, that, there's the review of it. That, that one review got a lot of attention for us uh, in the industry because, of course, Cashbox you know, wasn't really for the public per se, but uh, it was definitely read by the industry. Um, so a lot of people came calling, and uh, you know, thankfully Gary, Gary did, and he was, he was the right guy, and they were the right label for sure, and we were... Well, we were over the moon to go, you know, to sign with them. I mean, that was an amazing situation. I'd like to read a short bit from the liner notes by Craig Dorfman. Dear 23 didn't fit anywhere in a strictly subdivided musical landscape. For starters, it was musically smart as all hell, working the fertile territory between convention and surprise. And that brings us to our first track. It was a really big deal for me when I first heard it. This song probably was the biggest recognition maybe you got for the band. 
Well, initially, for sure. I mean, it led to so many things. Golden Blunders is interesting to me also because as a song, it, it sounds very pop on, on, you know, on the outside, but the story and the lyrics, of course, is very cautionary, I guess, is the best way of putting it. And um, it's just amazing to me that this song... I'm surprised it was picked as a single. I mean, I, I see it being so catchy, but I never, th I thought the lyrical content might actually kind of. Well, it's like Brick and Ben Folds 5. You know, a lot of people don't know what it's about. Well, it's, it's like a Trojan horse, right? The, a catchy melody is like the Trojan horse to get your message, you know, mm -hmm. to a lot of people without them even realizing what you're saying at first. And then, then maybe they can figure it out. I mean, that's, I think the purpose of a good melody a lot of the time is it's like the delivery device for the song to get people interested and hooked at first, and, you know, of course, no pun intended or pun intended. I mean, and then once you've got them, maybe they will actually take a look at the content more, um, you know, and Golden Blunders, it's funny. I mean, I think what I have brought to the, you know, to the table as far as the posies a lot is, is I, I, I experienced a lot of, uh, there was a lot of divorce in my family, um, you know, on both sides, my mother and my father. And so even though I was very young, I mean, I think I wrote Golden Blunders when I was, 18 I want to say it sounds like it's written by somebody that maybe is a lot older and has gone through a lot more sure so even though I didn't have that experience yet like I I felt like I had some wisdom because I witnessed it so much in a way and I think actually you know in hindsight I, I actually did have some wisdom there and it wasn't it was a learned wisdom from like observe, observing other people but it wasn't from my experience yet you know what I'm saying um sure and of course, uh, you know, shock of shocks, uh, this song, you know, called Golden Blunders, which of course is a play on the Beatles' Golden Slumbers, uh, eventually ended up with us having nothing to do with it at all, except for me writing this song, ended up in the hands of Ringo Starr, you know, and he did a version on his Time Takes Time record. 1993, produced by Peter Asher. Peter Asher, you know, of course, a Peter and Gordon and also, you know, managed Linda Ronstadt and 10,000 mm -hmm. Maniacs. He produced, you know, so many people. He's the, he's the guy who found the song. And in fact, the way we discovered that uh, Ringo had actually covered it is that one day we were in Los Angeles and we were just summoned to go to Peter Asher's office, basically. We got a call from his, someone at his office saying, hey, you should come by. We really want to play you something. Ken and I just, you know, barely in our 20s, if not even before then, maybe I'm 19, he's 20, uh, going to Peter Ash's office, and he's not even there. And I think, I think an assistant just sat us in a couple of chairs across from the desk, you know, across the desk from Peter Asher's chair where he's not sitting. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, here you go. And they just hit play. And I mean, have you ever seen, well, you know that part in Jaws when Roy Scheider's on the beach and he first realizes there's really a huge shark in the water? Yes. And they do the classic, you know, camera pullback with the dolly and then they, they zoom in. It's like that Hitchcock vertigo kind of effect. I mean, when I, heard, when I heard Ringo Starr singing words that I'd written and a melody that I'd written, and of course, you know, the song was a nod to the Beatles in the first place. And, mm -hmm. and it's a Ringo-esque melody. You would, I would never have thought that. But when you hear him sing it, you're like, Oh, it's a natural for him. Well, he, he certainly did a good job of it, I think. And if you look at the, the, the personnel on the track, I mean, you've got, I believe, Wadi Wachtel. Andrew, Andrew Gold plays the solo on it. It was a big moment, you know, and it, it, it still is something that I'm, I'm really proud. I mean, you know, what more could I ask for, you know, I mean, than that? I mean, to have, I mean, one of the Beatles cover a song I wrote, I'm, I'm thrilled. And I'm still thrilled. It's incredible. 
I was listening to the demo of this, which is available on the... Well, the demo for Golden Blunders is available on the, the Omnivore uh, Records reissue of Dear 23. It's a deluxe reissue. And, you know, I, I know I sound like I'm trying to sell it, but, you know, I, I went through my personal archives because me being the recording guy, I was the guy that had all of the, the backups and the, the old tapes and things. And, you know, I can assure anyone listening that there is so much great stuff on there. And it's, I mean, there's probably... 25 bonus tracks on the, the the dear 23 reissue alone i mean it's 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 well worth it if you're if you're curious to see where these things came from in the demo of this song one of the themes seems to be about accidental pregnancy one of the lines is you're going to carry that weight a long time which in this case is different than what the beatles used yeah, I mean, it's very different, isn't it? But I mean, there's what? There's, you know, there's literal weight and there's metaphorical weight. In this case, it works on, on, on different levels. There's the lines in the, in the bridge, you know, uh, four weeks seemed like a long time then, uh, but nine months is longer now. What I'm getting with getting at there is actually even a little more dark, which is I'm, I'm implying that maybe these children in, in, in high school are, are you know, having sex and messing around and they, you know, something happens, you know, and I, I, and I was thinking four weeks also, like I was thinking of them playing the odds, like using the rhythm method, if you know what I'm saying, like, like, we're just going to not use protection (laughs) and like, okay, we're just going to throw caution to the wind. And now we have this thing that is going to, you know, affect the rest of our lives. And you know what? I mean, that's kind of what happens. I was impressed that in the demo, that the bridge key change was built in and the return to the original key and the boy and girl lyric tags were left in because you're not talking to just one or the other. They both had a role in this whole thing. Right, which is, you know, that's like life too. I mean, um, you know, everybody's got their role that they're playing. And it's, it's interesting to me that even in relationships, there's people that often want to blame like the other person in a long-term relationship, for instance, but really you know, it takes two to tango and everybody's playing their part. You added a spoken word forward masking Beatles thing at the end, which is fun. So that's another thing to look oh, forward God. to. <laughs> you know what? If, if you hear all the demos from that era, like, I mean, Ken's or mine's, we just always put that. It's, it's all that Beatles gibberish at the, from the end of their record. We, it's on every one of our demos from that era. It was like a joke, an inside joke with us, or now it's an outside joke for everyone to hear. But anyways. Well, Ringo toured that album, which had Golden Blunders on it, uh, with Harry Nilsson, Jeff Lynne, and Brian Wilson. Did you have the ability to see that lineup performing your song? Well, we actually, not that lineup, but the Posies did open a show for Ringo um, we, at this, uh, this venue called The Gorge in, uh, in George Washington. It's this amazing outdoor venue that's up on a, on a hill above uh, a valley where the Columbia River runs through it. It's a beautiful location. I mean, it's one of the top five most beautiful places to play. I mean, I'd say like, you know, Red Rocks, The Gorge, those kind of things, you know. Uh, and we actually opened the show for him. So got to meet him. And I, I believe at that time it was like Joe Walsh, Todd Rundgren, uh, Burton Cummings, who's, I'm, you know, I'm a big Burton Cummings fan. Nice. And uh, pretty killer band, you know. Uh, funny story is that, you know, I had a chance to go to the record release party when we were mixing Frosty on the Beater. And since I was the guy responsible for the listening to the mixes the most i actually we were finishing a mix and i'm like god i can't go because i you know i gotta i gotta check this mix out right and so i didn't go to the release party if you can believe that and so my bandmates went and i think 
and you know they came back and told me what it was like and of course that that song and that mix never ended up on the record so you know i should have gone to the release party and then even <laughs> years later i'm sure ken will tell you the story um i don't know for what reason i didn't get it together but ringo played a show also in seattle i think after we'd actually played shows with him and Ken went to the show and ended up getting to get up and sing on like, you know, with a little help from my friends, like they bring people up as they do with every show. And I didn't go to the show. So it's funny to me, like the guy that, that wrote the song missed both those things. But, you know, he covered my song. So I think I'm doing all right. When Ringo recorded the second verse, he added his Ticket to Ride beat, which was, you know, fun. That is fun, right? And whose idea? Do you think it was Ringo's idea? Or you think it was Peter Asher saying, come on, just one more time, do the Ticket to Ride? And Ringo's like, oh, my God, I'm so sick of that. Come on, Peter, you know. Well, I know you've made a practice out of closing all your doors. Now, speaking of demos, demos can be straight-up duplicate blueprints of an album version, which to me are disappointing. Although, hearing the Jellyfish do their most complex arrangements on a track first is interesting. I wouldn't play them for enjoyment because they don't sound sonically as good. But all the stuff is there, and that's really interesting to hear once. Or they can be disappointing if we find out that the producer added many of the elements which made it outstanding. But your demos are very listenable on their own, not as novelty versions of studio tracks that we want to listen to once. They're interesting, they're intimate, they're filled with the musical and lyrical ideas that fuel the final track. I mix them right in with my John Hour and Posey's tracks. Oh, well, thank you. You mentioned that Open Every Window was one of your favorites. Will you want to tell us why? I guess the thing for me personally about my demos is that for me, they were always an extension of where I started as a musician because, again, I grew up with the recording studio, right? So, you know, at a very young age, I was very comfortable making tracks and songs and recording things just all by myself. And, you know, I, I'm not just a guitar player or a singer or, you know, I can I can play many instruments and I can, I can record them. So it was fun for me. It was just something I did for pleasure to make little records. Um, And, you know, I I never set out with the the songs that I demoed for the posies to have them be templates for final versions, but there's a lot of things on my demos that ended up, you know, on those earlier posies records uh, being on the final record. I mean, you know, uh, you mentioned, Open Every Window, which is kind of a lesser-known Posies track. I'm, I mean, there's a lot going on in the demo that I that I that translated the harmonies and the the feel and even the solos and whatnot. But even in the case of Dream All Day demo, for instance, you know, got a lot of compliments on the drum beat on that song because it's of its unusualness, like the the verse drum beat on that. And you know that that is something that did come from my demo. It was written as part of the song. You know, I, I feel like often the parts are as much a part of the song, like the actual, you know, parts for the individual instruments are as important as the vocal melody and the words. I mean, they can be hooks as well. And I think that, you know, sometimes I write, I write musical parts from the perspective of, of a songwriter, not a musician, a lot of the time where I, I want it to be a hook. You know, you mentioned the Ticket to Ride drum fill. That's a hook. 
Yeah, I had a lot of fun doing those th- those demos, and you know, we we did less of the demoing with the posies as the years went on because we wanted things to be more of a surprise for each other, I guess. But initially, I mean, there were there were things that I did that were, you know, ended up being very close, it, or actually, some of it actually ended up being used on the record. I mean, on a Frosty on the Beater coming right along is that's my four track demo. I mean, it's it's basically that, and we replaced my harmony voice with Ken's, and and that was it. It was just done on a cassette four track. In this Open Every Window, you said that was one of the first tracks written for Frosting on the Beater and uh, predating any other songs on that album, possibly. And first song with a slightly alternate tuning, you drop the low E down to a D and put a capo on the second fret. That's all very interesting because that that lived in the song, right? Totally. And it's funny because sometimes people wonder why... Well, you know, if you use an, an open tuning or you know, a device like a capo, it, it does complicate things like how you perform it live. Like it makes it like an extra step that you have to do, but there's no other way to get certain sounds, you know, and, and certain voicings of certain chords, uh, other than doing things like augmenting the tuning and, you know, slapping a capo on there. So, you know, I've even gotten, you know, made fun of by, you know, some of my bandmates sometimes when we play live, like, Oh, here we go. Another, open tuning song, you know, and I think Kenneth has a lot of open tuning songs as well, but, you know, and, and you realize that sometimes if you actually examine the chord, it's basically still just a D chord or a G chord, or, you know, why don't you just play it like in a different position without the, the open tuning to make it easier, but it doesn't feel the same or sound the same if you do that. That's why I do it. I just, you know, I mean, I'm not ignorant to music theory and you know i know chords i mean i also played in jazz band when i was in high school as well as a guitar player so i i can play some sophisticated stuff but i'm not so sophisticated that i know all the names of everything or that i i I never look at it through the lens of a person who's coming to it from the theory first you know i i grew up with ear training i mean even the violin i took when i was younger i mean it was a method called suzuki method and you know, you learn by listening to records and you copy the records basically. And then in a couple of years, you start to see the correlations between what you hear and what you see as the notes on the page, you know? So I I just come to it. This is a long way of saying, I just come to it from how things sound to me and how it makes me feel. And uh, it was really, wow. It really led us off in a new direction, the whole open tuning thing. I mean, you know, Frosting on the Beater sounds radically different from Dear 23 because of that, because there are so many open tunings. And I don't know if modal is the right phrase to use, but some of those tunings lead into kind of more modal kind of shapes. Like there's songs like Lights Out or Definite Door, or Burn and Shine. They all have that kind of modal kind of sound to them is what I've been told by somebody who knows more about music than I do. So Frosting on the Beater was 1993, and it's your second record with Geffen of three. And I'd like to read from Craig Dorfman's wonderful liner notes on the album. He says, The turbulent guitars, the tangled, insistent solos, the pressure of the rhythm section, the raw exposure of the vocals, the unapologetic danger of the melodies, the impressionism and unity give the record an unrelenting, beautiful urgency. And even now, a quarter of a century after its release, Frosting on the Beater sounds like it could explode at any minute. And I think he's right. Well, I mean, I gotta, I gotta say that Craig put it beautifully. Uh, thanks, Craig. Um, I think the check's in the mail. Or could, do you accept? Do you accept PayPal, Craig? Um, 
yeah, I mean, Frosty on the Beater is is such a it feels like a moment for me because I I really enjoy in hindsight Dear Twenty Three and Failure. You know, I think the song craft is 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 really quite excellent. And but I, those records still feel like, um, you know, people trying on clothes, trying to figure out what they want to wear in a way. And also, you can really hear, I think, our influences on the sleeves of those clothes <laughs> quite prominently on those records. Um, I mean, you know, Beatles, Beatles, Beatles. Oh, XTC, of course, uh, Andy Partridge, Colin Mulding, uh, who were, of course, also trying to do the Beatles a lot. So we were kind of doing, you know, XTC doing the Beatles sometimes as well, or we were doing Elvis Costello doing the Beatles, if that makes sense, you know. Um, Frosting on the Beater is the first time for me where I felt like we made a record that really kind of sounded like us. Your identity came from that album. Right. It was like, that's, that's the one where I think that things crystallized and we didn't, we didn't sound so much like the things that we were influenced by. And, and there's also tonalities on that record. Just the guitar sound is very unique. Let's talk about the intro to Dream All Day, which is based on the song's bridge. And it's crunchy and jangly, which means that the strings are ringing together. Can you explain what makes that intro special in terms of tuning or open strings? Well, Dream All Day is actually standard tuning, but I'm actually playing chords with my thumb on that one, if you can believe it. it, it mm -hmm. You know, I, I see people on the internet trying to explain how to perform play the song correctly and in fact my partner ken did a uh, i think a video for someone who wanted to know how to play dream all day and it's it's on the internet it was and now it's been watched a bunch and the funny thing is actually he's not he's not playing the intro right as far as i know <laughs> i was like that's not how it goes that's not how i play it at all it misses some of the the subtle things that make it ring the way that it does. But uh, yeah, I use my thumb and I leave the, some open strings. And, you know, again, it's about, it's like a harmonious dissonance is the way I would put it. It's like just adding enough of an extra spice or flavor to make it not conventional, you know, uh, which could describe a lot of the posies. Actually, we always, I think we, you know, the way that I write and can write, so we, we always throw a little something extra in there that's just a little bit left of center that makes it unique. Who directed the video and was his direction to the band, okay, everyone throw your hair as much as possible while we blow smoke at you? Well, I mean, I don't think that was his direction at all. I think we just like throwing our hair around. I mean, who doesn't, you know, like in a, when you're in a rock band, that's kind of like 101 for for rock and roll and you know to be to be fair i mean uh there's a band that are friends of ours and actually a band who i i helped remix one of their records and we've toured with a band called red cross um and i mean that was one of the first tours the posies did was opening for red cross on the dear 23 tour for one of our first Nashville tours you want to talk about rock and roll like 101 and like how to like how to perform live i mean we we took notes for sure and um that did end up informing how we played live after Dear 23 because, you know, Dear 23 doesn't sound like Frosting on the Beater because we hadn't been on tour also 
You know, you see what I'm getting at? Like we'd actually, we hardened a bit because of, you know, the, the road does that to you. When you start playing these songs live, the video was sold to us by the director. The way he got me hooked is he mentioned Fellini, actually, in, in the treatment. <laughs> right. And I'm a huge Fellini fan. I mean, there's Eight and a Half is one of my favorite movies of all time. I have a, a, a EP of covers called Six and a Half that's a nod to him. But, uh, of course, our video looks nothing like a Fellini movie, really, except there is some smoke, you know, and there's some wind every once in a while. But, uh, yeah, basically, I mean, we just had to jump around in the snow for a whole day. Get this, not only did we have to jump around in the snow, but because a lot of the track is in slow motion, uh, the, the footage is slow motion, we actually spent most of the day jumping around at double the speed as well, like listening to our playback. I don't think I've ever recovered from that experience. Uh, it's really done some twisted things to my mind, but there's some good shots in the video. It, it certainly looks nice, you know. Can you hear it? Like an invitation Can you feel flavor of the month. I love the can you hear it, the pop falsetto. Easier to swallow, harder to spit out. Really nice uh, lyrics there, and it's a good chorus. Yeah, and, and written late in the game, too, I believe. It's funny, when you're a young artist, at least when I was a young artist, you know, I mean, of course, there's integrity and in wanting to do what you want to do and not, you know, I, I didn't feel like wanting to sell out or, you know, work for the man and all those kind of things. But you know, our A&R man, the guy that signed us, Gary Gersh, he, he did suggest that we keep writing songs. And that song was a direct response to him asking me to write more songs. Because I was like, oh, okay, you don't, you don't hear a single yet. Or maybe you want to hear more single type material. I'll write you a single, you know, and I'll make a little, I'll make a comment too about, you know, the whole thing about writing singles or, or things that people admire that are kind of instantaneous and then kind of maybe disappear quickly because, you know, it's just more superficial. But I, I, somehow I think I managed to get a little message in there too. And it's catchy. Um, so I got to give him props actually for encouraging me and pushing me, you know, because I, I probably would have never written that song if he hadn't, hadn't have challenged me, you know. 1993, you guys got a song on the Reality Bites soundtrack, that didn't hurt at all. No, it didn't. <laughs> Basketball Diaries soundtrack in 1995 had Coming Right Along on it. You're getting a little exposure here in other places. And then leads you right into 1996's uh, Amazing Disgrace, the third in the trilogy for Geffen. Reading from the liner notes again, it's easy to forget Middle Child Amazing Disgrace, wedged as it is between the Posey's breakthrough record, Frosting on the Beater, and their breakup record, Success. 
that that's a shame because Amazing Disgrace is the Posey's record that most explicitly and most aggressively demands attention. What do you feel about that? Wow, you, you know, you talk about hindsight. I mean, in hindsight, that is, I, I've, I remember listening to it again when we did the reissues, uh, when we were preparing for the, all the reissues. And what just struck me was the energy of it, because it's clearly a band, to me, that's on the brink of, like, of destruction. <laughs> you know, like, we were definitely on our, you could feel that we were on our way out at that point. And I, I was just amazed at, by how, angry the record feels like it really does it has that energy it's like our most punk record for sure you know um well i want to just interject that on my two favorites are hate song and fight it if you want and i just think of those as fun power pop songs obviously hate song is a twist on love song and it's got but it's got this really buzzy bouncy bass going on it's really great yeah and fight it if you want has that super fun accent on beat two Which reminds me of the intro to the theme song, if you can believe this, of the Banana Splits TV show. Wait a minute. Wait, hold on a second. Dave, we have a first here. Now, someone drawing a parallel between my song, Fight It If You Want, and the Banana Splits. This is a first. And the reason, <laughs> the reason I think of the Banana Splits is because Liz Fair and Material Issue covered that song on Saturday Morning Cartoon's Greatest Hits in 1995. <laughs> And you have that same kind of accent. I love it. I'm just, I'm having fun with it. I, I love the fact that you are drawing parallels between things that are very pop on things that, on, on songs of mine that are actually very dark, because again, that's kind of, it's the bitter and the sweet, you know, with me, you know, and, and also, I mean, it's, I think that's with, it's with Ken as well. I mean, that's, that's kind of sums up what we do and I think do well. I mean, it's, you've got those hooks, but well, I heard the album without knowing the timeline, so I didn't know you were breaking up, and I just listened to it on its face value. Right, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, and we, we weren't breaking up yet, but the seeds were planted, and you can, hear it in, you can hear it in the tunes. I mean, Amazing Disgrace, what I think it comes down to, again, like I bring up a lot, is it's the energy, and the energy of Amazing Disgrace is, it's our most aggressive, like, recording, I think, for sure, and, and some of the performances are, it's, it's got the most punk approach to our pop, you know, sensibilities, if you will. I mean, it's a far cry sonically from Dear 23 and, and, you know, the, maybe the more Baroque and layered affairs of, of uh, our earlier years. Um, There's a lot of great songs on it though, I think. Agreed.
You had previously done some solo work, but in 2006 you finally released your first full-length solo album called Songs from the Year of Our Demise. And interestingly, when I search the more than 15,000 songs in my digital music library on the word demise, no songs other than your album comes up. When you decided on your album title, did you think about the uniqueness or scarcity at all? Um, I didn't. I just, like many things I do, it's just kind of an instinctual thing sometimes with writing. The seed of that record started as far back as a tour the Posies did uh, for Amazing Disgrace in Australia, of all places. It was right around a time when the Posies were not doing so well interpersonally, and we landed in Australia, and I was going to be there for a month because I actually stayed on after the tour ended and produced a record for another band. And we were burnt. I mean, all of us were. It was just, you know, we were running on fumes. And I remember there was a big story at the time uh, about, I think, some kind of a, a shooting that had occurred or some kind of a massacre that had happened in Tasmania, you know, which is, you know, right off the coast of Australia, right there, part of it. And like, uh, I started writing this song called The Year of Our Demise, thinking about this. And it did kind of, that's, that was the seed of what started, what became Songs from the Year of Our Demise. And this was actually, God, that'd be 1996. So there's actually a whole other version of the song, The Year of Our Demise, that has different words, uh, that actually talks about you know, people dying on that island and, and, and all sorts of stuff. It's, it's kind of heavy when I look back at it, but um, that record is so personal to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm the guy in the band. There's, there's, there's different personalities in every band, right? You get, you get one of, if you got four people in the band, there's like, you know, usually one of every type, you know, and I'm, or two split personalities <laughs> or two. Yeah, sure. There you go. Right. Split personalities. And, you know, I, I was known for being a procrastinator for sure, you know, so it took me a long time to actually, you know, uh, I was that guy. I was the guy that would bring in dream all day, last minute to the sessions, like right before we did it. And then it ends up being the first single on the record. You know, that, that was, I like to, I like to think of it as my role in the band. I'm sure it, it drove some other people crazy, but it, <laughs> it was your job. It was my job. But hey, you know, it did leave room for surprises. And, you know, just that, that's what happens sometimes. You realize in hindsight that actually things worked out the way they were supposed to. And uh, it took me forever to, to really finish that record. But, I mean, there's 15 songs on the year of our demise. I've got fully nine other songs I released on the Japanese version and the European version. And there's probably, I probably recorded like, almost 30 songs for it. So it's, it's like a double record's worth of stuff. And I, you know, I played everything pretty much on it too and spent most of the time by myself working on it. So it did take a while. And, you know, in, in the interim, I worked on a Posies record that came out in uh, Every Kind of Light. And I also worked on a Big Star record that came out. So even though I did a lot of other stuff, that record took a long time. And, you know, I did drag my heels at certain points. But in the end, I'm I'm really proud of it. I think it where the Posies is like a collection of what two people does. It's, you know, Songs from the Year by Demise has a flow to it that can't exist, I think, in any other way than one person having responsibility for how thing, how the flow is going to occur. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, you take a record like Amazing Disgrace by the Posies, I admire it for how schizophrenic it is, but it's, it is really kind of eclectic and can be a grab bag. You get everything from, you know, 
guitar pop to heavy sludgy guitar stuff to you know it's it's a more of a mixed bag i was aspiring with songs from your red demise to make a record that you would put on and want to go through the entire cycle and have it have a uh, an ebb and a flow and a mood all the way through it and i feel like i accomplished that A reviewer from Tiny Mix Tapes said, The melodies are so damn spot on that I keep coming back again and again. Cloudy day pop, that's hard to top. And I agree, it affects me in the same way a Neil Finn mellow playlist does. It's perfect morning coffee listen or background music uh, for working, and it's very thoughtful. It just, it just moves me. I love well, it. Thank you. I mean, I guess I think, you know, coming back to the energy you put into something. I I had a very specific energy I wanted to put into that. And of course, you know, I'm people talk about what is the record about and well, it's about a lot of things, but you know, when we go through life, everybody goes through so many situations where, you know, things start, things end, you learn, you move on. That's kind of what I'm talking about with that record. I mean, it's you know, people wanted to maybe pin it on one of my relationships or one situation I was in, but really it's a culmination of just, of living one's life. And, you know, I mean, I think everybody, you know, everybody goes through, through ups and downs. And um, I think the thing I said about it was, you know, what I'm saying with that record was that there's a, a light at the end of the tunnel, ultimately, but you have to go through the tunnel first to get to the light. Um, and that's kind of, you know, I, that's how I would sum that record up. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. I only heard of Big Star initially because they were referenced in a song by The Replacements, who I was a huge fan of. You know, Paul Westerberg has the song Alex Chilton, and that's how I kind of heard about them for the first time. And then, and then making a record like the first Posies record and working at record stores, I mean, well, of course, other people working at record stores are the kind of people that like to trade, you know, music and share things. And uh, people just assumed that because... I made a record like that, that I must have already heard of Big Star, but I never had. I didn't really listen until Big Star until, ooh, I want to say 89. And I remember the manager of the record store I was working at was amazed. He was in incredulous that I hadn't heard of Big Star, in fact. Well, someone has to introduce you to that band. You don't find them on the, on the hit Right, parade, and, so. and back then, of course, there was no internet, and so it was all people just sharing music the old-fashioned way, like actually making a tape, a cassette tape, remember those folks, or like buying records. So he, long story short, he, he, he said, I'm going to give you the rest of the day off of work. He went over to the vinyl bin, and he, he, he picked out a Big Star record, and he said, I'm going to buy this for you. I don't want you to go home and listen to it. He said, go home and put on the song called September Girls. And I went home and I dropped the needle and, you know, it's, it's corny perhaps, but it, it felt like meeting a long lost friend, I guess, in a way, you know, maybe, maybe I'd heard the bangles cover up somewhere, like in my subconscious, it was floating around, but I doubt it. 
So, you know, it's just so funny to me or ironic that people always, you know, we get reviews still to this day about how, like, we grew up listening to Big Star. We didn't grow up listening to Big Star. We couldn't even hear, no one even knew who they were back then. I mean, who knew that, you know, we would become such fans of this band and then we would end up playing with them as well. And that all happened so naturally as well. Yeah, yeah. We gotta be together. Not that many people can say they wrote songs with Alex Chilton or the drummer Jody Stevens, let alone in the band Big Star. I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole playing in Big Star uh, for 17 years and then actually getting to make a Big Star record, I mean, that's something that, you know, I certainly would never have predicted. You played with them before you recorded Yeah, I mean, the, the long story short, actually, I believe what happened is that just a, a couple of guys who worked at a, a radio station in Columbia, Missouri, uh, they had the, you know, like, like many things in life, it starts with a question, right? Like, you know, what if, or would it be possible? And they had the idea like, what, why can't we get Big Star together? Will Big Star play a show? And, you know, they asked Jody Stevens, the drummer, um, and Jody said, sure, if, if you can get Alex Chilton to say yes. And I think Jody didn't think that Alex would say yes in a million years, but, you know, lo and behold, Alex did say yes. And then they had to kind of scramble because they didn't really have a band at that point. I mean, Chris Bell had passed away and Andy Hummel, uh, the original bass player, and also who also wrote some great songs with the band as well, uh, like Way Out West. Um, he was asked, but I think he had a cushy job going in the, like the aerospace industry or something. And was like, I don't, you know, I, there's no way this is, I'm going to do this right now. It's just not in the cards. And maybe didn't think anything was going to come with it. Come of it, I'm not sure. So then a short list had to be made, and they I think they bandied around names like Paul Westerberg, Matthew Sweet, Chris Stamey. Like who's going to be the 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 other players in the new version of Big Star? Um, but then I think they thought, well, gosh, you know, if we got some of those people, it might draw too much attention to the fact that they're, you know, like hey, we've got Matthew Sweet is playing with Big Star, you know, where we had just enough attention I think going and we had a connection with Jody Stevens at this point because we met him through our A&R man Gary Gersh because we thought about making our record Dear 23 at, at the studio in Memphis that Jody still worked at Ardent Studios where all the big star records were made at we'd actually met Jody before because of that and he liked so he yeah had he heard the songs that you yes covered? he did he loved our he big loved star? our single that we did he thought it was okay. amazing and he also he told us he said that John Fry who was the producer and the of, of the big star records and also the owner of Ardent studios he was notorious for not liking cover versions of big star material and uh, john fry heard our single and actually listened to it and said those guys did a good job so that worked in our favor but you know i wish i had this i wish if 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 this was the modern age i would have this this next thing i'm going to tell you about on a voice memo or something but i got a call from jody stevens that was on my answering machine i i, I uh that was him asking me to come play with big star and at that point, it was just me he was asking because he didn't realize that Ken could play bass as well. They were looking for a guitar player. And he knew that I played guitar and, you know, I was 
I was, you know, doing more of the lead type stuff in the posies anyway. So that's, I got the call. Like, and if you can imagine my face when I got this call and then, you know what I did? Like, I mean, it was literally like, hi, John, this is Jody Stevens. Um, we've been, we're thinking about putting big star back together. Would you like be interested in playing with us? And I was like, oh my God. And the first thing I thought was I got to call Ken and I called Ken and I said, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but I just got a call to play with big star. And I, I, I mean, I felt bad cause I was like, you know, we were, we were partners and doing things and oh, you had an album, we had an year. album that year. And he was, yeah, he was, he was disappointed for sure. I mean, I was like, dude, I mean, I just got, what should I do? I mean, of course I'm going to, I'm going to say yes. So he, it was, this is right before a thing called South by Southwest. Everybody knows about. And he went to South by South that, West that year and he ran into or he actually I don't think he ran into I think he actually went after the guys who were getting putting the thing together this guy named Jeff Breeze was one of them the guys from the radio station in Columbia Missouri and I believe he might have threatened them with bodily harm if that's the way he puts it in and of course you know it all ended up working out and the two of us ended up doing it. And what I'm getting at is it's perfect that we did it because it's absolutely right. Perfect. Because we, we weren't two and two, two and two, right. Two and two and two old, two sets of old friends um, or old, you know, and also we weren't that well known enough that what we were doing was going to overshadow big star and we could do the harmonies. I mean, my God, if you hear all the early recordings of big star live, they weren't doing those harmonies live like we were doing them. They, they, they didn't have the, the people available to do it. Most of them were, a lot of those shows were just as a trio, you know, so there you go. That's how it's all started out. And, you know, we, we played together for 17 years with that lineup. And, you know, we only did maybe an average of five shows a year, but, you know, we went to Europe, Japan. We played The Tonight Show where, on, where there's a great clip online of us. It's definitely got some some interesting things about it for sure, but uh, that's kind of how it all happened. On the Definite Door single, you included a cover of a song by Chris Bell of Big Star. Is that the only time you recorded something by that band before you worked with them? The version of "I Am the Cosmos" you're talking about was actually the B side to a vinyl only single that we a tribute single, I guess that we that we made uh that had a couple of big star related songs we covered a song on the a side called feel which is from big stars number one record and actually feel ended up on a suddenly Mary cd single somewhere i believe is on, on I, I believe back in the day and then i am the cosmos was a song that we heard during the making of dear 23 and i think i mean the story i tell is that and it's the truth is that within 20 seconds of hearing it, I turned to everybody and was like, we're covering this song. Like, I mean, no one had really heard of it that much at that point. It was actually sent to me on a cassette by a journalist from Memphis, I believe. It was before Chris Bell's, it's a Chris Bell composition, not a big star song. It was before his record had been re-released. So we were kind of a, ahead of the curve, I think on that, although there's some other bands that had covered it and heard it. Um, but yeah, those both those songs we recorded on our own. Uh, I mix both of those songs um, and are some of my favorite recordings of that era that we did. And, you know, in the case of I Am The Cosmos for me, and, you know, later I got to join Big Star and actually, you know, I got to kind of, well, I was the other guitar player and, and, and a singer in Big Star. So I got kind of to do the Chris Bell role in Big Star, you know, to, to, cause there's, you know, Alex Chilton is the other singer guitar player. And I, I got to, I pay tribute, I felt like, to Chris 
by doing that song. And we actually included that song in Big Star set. Every show that we played with Big Star, I and the Cosmos was in the set and I, I sang it. And it was, and, and it's funny too, because we, <laughs> you know, we, we, we broached the subject of playing it with, with Alex Chilton, you know, and because, uh, you know, we weren't sure how to navigate you know, which songs Alex was going to want to perform with Big Star, shall we say. So we were very tentative in approaching him about things at times, just cautiously treading, you know, uh, when we were doing that kind of a thing and establishing a set list. And I, I think I suggested, hey, what, would you begin to do an I Am The Cosmos? And he was like, oh, that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good idea. I, I think I might know that. And then when we played it, he knew it perfectly like he and it wasn't even and it wasn't even his song but he knew it like note for note and ken and i just looked at each other like oh okay we get it you know he, he, <laughs> he you know alex never did anything he didn't like to do so obviously i think the fact that we performed it even though it wasn't a big star song we performed it the entire 17 years we played together i think that shows you you know not only my level of admiration for the song but his as well everybody's looking so hard Everyone is on the line Everybody's moving sideways Hoping there's more to find You never had the chance to waste before You never had the chance to waste Let's talk about Sideways. You've got a new single, and that's... Uh going to be on an, an album that you're projecting will be available maybe in about a year or so tell us about it what's interesting to me about sideways is how well it actually fits in with what we're all going through right now which mm -hmm. is you know you may or may not have heard dave of this thing called uh the worldwide pan the, the election the, COVID, the pandemic uh, social unrest oh, yeah. black light you know everything black lives matter it's like things have 2020 has been a challenging year, which, you know, depending on how you want to look at it is, you know, I think there's some good things about that too, for sure. But what's amazing to me about Sideways is that actually it's a song, I, the earliest version I have of it is from the late 90s, believe it or not. Um, and it's a song that I presented for the most recent Posies record because I wanted to, I felt like it would, it would, it sounded like, us it sounded like kind of the classic version of us and i felt like having a song on there that represented that and you know a lot of what we do with the posies now is trying to shy away from that and experiment and try new things i felt like this was this was like it was okay just to sound like something that we might have done before with maybe a bit of a more modern twist on it so it's amazing to me that this song is actually has fit in so well, you know, um, with what's going on because it, it completely was unintentional, but it sounds like it was written for now. Again, you know, showing the whole. And once again, it's kind of a fun song. It's a joyful song in a way. Well, right? uh, it's, it's like I like hate song. Well, it's funny. I I, I would never and and all due respect, and I and please keep this in. I just I love it because I would never think of when you say joyful and hate song together and those two things. I just. Well, American Pie. I mean, American. If you ask people if American Pie is a, a happy well, song, maybe, may, it absolutely is not lyrical. Right. I think maybe hate song even musically is like American Pie in hell. 
How about that? So <laughs> it's, sure, sideways sure. again has that Trojan horse vibe where it's, it sounds pretty and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's reassuring yet. It talks about things that are challenging, which I think is also reassuring, which is a lot of how, what I write about. I mean, I, I write about a lot of the things that are, have been painful for me or things I've witnessed. And, but I, you know, it, by doing that, I think it's kind of not to be too pretentious. It's, it's a bit, it's a bit like alchemy in a way where you take these things and you make something else, something else comes out of them, you know, in the end. You know, if you're at a concert and you're, you're banging your head, even if the song is heavy, you're having a great time with it. Right. You know well, I mean? sure. And I mean, let's look at the blues. I mean, you know, people, people mm -hmm. rock out to the blues all the time, but it, the blues is completely based upon. Isn't Sideways cathartic? I think so. I think in this time, it was it, it was nice to have something that felt like a release. Believe it or not, part of the lyrics was actually inspired by the movie Sideways. You remember that movie Sideways? Mm -hmm, That's sure, where I got like sure. there's there's the whole there's a scene in that movie where Paul Giamatti. It's the last scene of the movie. He goes to to take a chance uh, on his relationship with the Virginia Madsen character. And the last scene of the movie is he walks up the stairs to her apartment. And he knocks on the door and then it cuts, it, it cuts to black. That's the end of the movie. And, you know, that's the whole, the whole line in there about, you know, what if it's true that you won't know why it's about like, it's about taking the chance, you know, no matter, even though you don't know what's going to happen, you know, it's about taking the risk. Um, and there's even lines in that uh, that directly talk about him, you know, like, you know, another summer in the Valley and another student you can't teach because, uh, Giamatti was he was a high school English teacher and he felt like he was failed. So there's another student you can't teach that the line is about Giamatti. You know, that's where I got that from. But it's 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 funny because uh, the whole first verse feels like it could have been written about now. You know, everybody's, you know, uh, everybody's uh, looking so hard. Everyone is on the line. Everybody's moving sideways, hoping there is more to find. I mean, yeah, that kind of sums up a lot of what has happened this year it was written long before this all happened so i remember when i last saw you did you care? Did you see me too? It looked like you had a lot to prove Now that life was catching up with you There's a journey that includes we deserve more than this or we don't deserve what they're doing to us or the journey that includes appreciating what you had and what you have. You guys went through this whole thing together, you and Ken. You know, first of all, you guys as a unit, things happening to you, for you, and then against each other, and then back together again, and then appreciation. What's that like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm more the cup is half full kind of guy. So I'm sure there are points and times where it was very challenging, but, with, you know, you know how life is. I mean, if you've lived it for a while, you look back at it and you realize that a lot of those challenges you thought were really you know, horrible at the time, perhaps, were actually things... And important. They were super important. And I, I mean, I, I look back at it now and I can honestly say that, you know, 
I think those things needed to happen. I mean, you know, uh, like for instance, breaking up, the Posies breaking up. I mean, sometimes I thought, should we have broken up? Or maybe Kenneth said, maybe we shouldn't have broken up or we could have just kept going or I've thought that too. And, you know, no, that totally needed to happen. I mean, we... Part of the process. Part of the process. And, you know, we grew up together in a lot of ways. And at a certain point, we had to go figure out our own identities and, and work on our own issues too, because uh, that's part of it too. We're not just, we're not just songwriters and, you know, we're musicians, we're people as well. And we, I mean, Ken and I, we've both experienced a lot in our personal lives and we have had our own respective sets of designer baggage and to bring along with us. And then also, you know, I mean, you know, it's just, it's figuring these things out. And, and now we're at a point, I think that, you know, yeah, I mean, sure, there are, there are things from our past that, you know, one of us might go like, oh, I wish that hadn't happened, or I wish you hadn't have done that, or, but you know what, I, I'm not really like that. I, I feel like it was all part of the process. I, I really am at the point where I can appreciate the, the posies for what it is, which is a very unique relationship. Well, in addition to spending unlimited number of hours together, you lost members of the band yeah, I mean, and we weathered those things together as well. I mean, we've been around long enough that, I mean, we have that perspective of, you know, history is one of those things that you can't really invent. I mean, you can pretend to have history, but you put real history in that kind of, you know, that shorthand and that kind of subtext that informs what you do can't really be invented. And we have that history. I mean, like I said, I've known him since I was 13 years old and he was 14 and you know we're we are now like at the at the beginning of our fifties. I mean, the fact that we're doing anything as much less like you know making still making really good music together and wanting to work together. I mean, I think that says something there. You know that there's something that both of us still get out of it. You know, and uh, I mean it's it is kind of a for both of us. I think he would say this. I know he said this before that it's it's a once in a lifetime relationship that that he and i have like we're never going to have we'll have other we've had other great collaborations and lots of great things that we do that we're proud of but the thing that that we have with the posies is never going to happen in our lifetime ever again he'd been through hell and back and recovered and fixed it instead of you know doing the behind the music where you got to have this sad violin and you know and talk about the death and destruction and drugs i don't do that <laughs> I know, you know, we, we've done the whole behind the music thing. We're, we're now beyond behind the music. Look at it this way, Dave. I mean, if we can't appreciate what we have, God, I'm in super fortunate. You know, if I didn't do anything else with my music career, I, I would consider myself fortunate, you know, at this point. But of course, I want to do lots more and we want to do more together. I mean, and it's also good that we do lots of other stuff besides the posies, I think is also, that's crucial too. I mean, that has informed what we've done and with the posies in the recent, more recent years and has definitely kept it fresh. Yeah. The cup is definitely half full when it comes to the posies. Well, John Auer, it has been a total blast talking with you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks Dave. I hope you got some good stuff there. That was fun for me as well. And uh, really appreciate you uh, going the extra Well, I guess I'm in Canada right now, so I should say the extra kilometer where I'm at, but (laughs) I really appreciate it. You uh, wanting to get so in-depth on this. So thank you. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 23 with John Auer. 
There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the link for this episode. If you like the show, consider reviewing us wherever you podcast. Your positive review will help other listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.